This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast. Today I sit down with Don West. He's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe. And with our friend Steve Moses, he's a well-regarded firearms instructor and self-defense expert. And we're going to be looking behind the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. If you're at all interested in gun rights or self-defense issues, you've almost certainly heard of the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Kyle Rittenhouse was, at that time, a 17-year-old who went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, after a couple nights of protests that had devolved into rioting. It was August 25th, 2020, the night before there had been looting and there had been arson. Kyle's stated purpose for being there that night was that he had come to Kenosha to help protect a local business owner whose business had been partially burned the night before. Rittenhouse had served as a lifeguard, and as part of that, he had had first aid training, and he brought his first aid kit along with him that night in order to render aid to people who had been hurt in the chaos. He also brought along an AR-15-style rifle that he had borrowed from a friend to protect himself, in case things got out of hand. And of course we know now that things did get out of hand. At one point in the evening, a 36-year-old man named Joseph Rosenbaum targeted Rittenhouse. He had issued verbal threats, he had thrown something at him, and he chased Rittenhouse down. Rittenhouse ran away until he found himself cornered in between a couple of cars and trapped between those cars and a group of protesters. Based on eyewitness testimony, it's clear that at one point, Rosenbaum got his hands on Kyle's rifle and fearful that Rosenbaum would take that rifle away and shoot him with it, Rittenhouse fired four shots. They hit Rosenbaum center mass and they proved fatal. The crowd that had gathered around Rittenhouse and Rosenbaum then started the turn on Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse knew he had to get out of there for his own safety, and he ran in the direction where he knew law enforcement had a presence. As he was running away, Rittenhouse attracted the attention of other people in the crowd. One of those people was 26-year-old Anthony Huber, who chased after Rittenhouse and hit him with a skateboard. Rittenhouse tumbled, hit the ground. While he was on the ground, another unknown assailant uh, ran up to him, did sort of an in-air jump kick. Rittenhouse fired two shots, but missed that person who uh, ran away after he heard those shots. It didn't stop Anthony Hewer, however. Anthony Hewer pressed his attack. He hit Rose, uh, He hit Rittenhouse again with the skateboard and then reached and tried to get his rifle. That's when Rittenhouse fired a single shot that hit Huber. Huber stepped away and fell and died. Rittenhouse managed to get back on his feet. He continued running in the direction where he knew law enforcement was when he had his final confrontation with another 26-year-old, this time named Gage Grosskreutz. Grosskreutz was armed with a pistol, and at one point, by his own admission at trial, he pointed his firearm at Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse raised his rifle and pointed it at Grosskreutz, and for a moment, it looked like on video that that ended the confrontation. Grosskreutz raised his hands up. He looked as if he was going to step back and retreat, but then at the last minute, he lunged towards Rittenhouse, who then fired 
a single shot that hit Grosskreutz in his bicep. Terribly wounded, Grosskreutz got back to his feet, Rittenhouse got up, and then was finally able to get to where there was a large law enforcement presence. I spoke to Don West and Steve Moses last year, not long after this shooting took place, and we all agreed that shot by shot, Rittenhouse seemed justified in using deadly force against each one of his attackers. We also all agreed, however, that Rittenhouse had shown poor judgment when he decided to bring a rifle to a protest situation. We all felt that the big issue at trial would be whether a jury would look narrowly at just those individual shots and decide, based on the letter of the law, whether they were justified, which we thought that they were, or whether they would step back and take a broader perspective and choose to use their position as a juror to hold Rittenhouse accountable for his decision to bring a long gun to that dangerous environment. Sure enough, at trial, the prosecutors did everything they could to keep the focus on that big picture, and the defense attorneys did everything they could to focus the jury's attention on the narrow uh, view, the individual shots. In the end, the jurors deliberated for four days over the course of 27 hours in the deliberation room, and they came back with the right decision, not guilty on all counts. That said, a not guilty verdict is not an exoneration, and not guilty doesn't necessarily mean innocent. I asked Don West about that distinction. Not in any way does it mean innocent, and it doesn't mean not innocent. It's just interestingly that a jury, when they reach a verdict, doesn't decide whether the person is guilty or innocent. What they decide is whether or not the prosecution has made its case beyond a reasonable doubt. We've talked about this in many other, uh, from many other perspectives, but in this case, once Kyle Rittenhouse was able to lay the basis for a self-defense claim, and it was evident to anybody and everybody immediately that was the defense in the case, but as soon as there was some evidence in the record of that, then the burden shifts to the prosecution, and they must prove the elements of the crimes they charge beyond a reasonable doubt, and then as to each crime charged for which self-defense applies, and I think it was every crime that was charged, with perhaps the exception of the possession of the firearm charge itself that the judge dismissed uh, earlier, but the prosecutor has to prove each and every element of the crime, but then also, when self-defense is raised, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was not in self-defense. That's a very, very high standard. One, I think, sometimes that lawyers don't truly take advantage of when they are making their arguments and presentations to the jury to illustrate just how high that test or that standard is for the prosecution. And I, I remember, in fact, arguing in some self-defense cases that the prosecution has to establish it was not self-defense to such a high degree that there is no reasonable possibility. There is no reasonable likelihood that it was or that it could have been in self-defense. And anything less than that means that it hasn't been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And then the only lawful verdict is not guilty. If the, if the jury's 95% convinced that 
it was not self-defense, but there's that lingering residual reasonable doubt, then the proper verdict is not guilty. And by no means does that mean a declaration of innocence. It only means that the system worked the way it should have. And when the prosecutor failed to meet its high burden, then uh, the only lawful verdict is not guilty. Don also spoke about the prosecutor's strategy of taking the broad view and trying to convince the jury to hold Rittenhouse accountable for bringing his rifle to the chaos in the first place. Here's Don. That's a very good point. I think the prosecution attempted at every opportunity to expand the boundaries of this incident to include all of those decisions, why and how he came to be there, how old he was, how he came to be in possession of that uh, long gun to start with, whether he said everything truthfully or not truthfully, even if it didn't particularly matter to the charges that he faced. They wanted to expand it to include every, every bad or even misguided decision that was made. Of course, the defense wanted to narrow the scope, and I think rightfully, because the claim of self-defense really focuses on those moments before and after the fatal shots are fired, which doesn't mean that everything else before it can't be relevant, but it isn't necessarily relevant. The prosecution, I think, was attempting to capitalize on the emotional aspects of this. I, I think you've heard the phrase jury nullification probably, and usually that's something that the defense gets the benefit of, and that is when someone may, may be guilty, but the jury just doesn't like the crime they're charged with, or they think that to convict someone of that would be so unfair that they disregard the law and find someone not guilty. I suspect that the reverse is true in these highly charged emotional cases where legal scholars and people with a little training in self-defense and frankly most anybody with common sense would see the video and how this thing unfolded and it looks like self-defense when you cut through all of that emotionally charged rhetoric surrounding it and the fear, of course, would be that the jury would make a decision based upon emotion or sympathy, things that they're told not to do. But as human beings, living, breathing, feeling human beings, it enters into all of the decisions that we make and, and uh, for fearfully uh, theirs as well. But uh, to their credit, I think they saw through those emotional appeals and did render verdicts based upon the law and the evidence. So I definitely think it's worth taking some time to go through each one of these incidents to look at why Rittenhouse was not only justified in using lethal force to protect himself, but also how he actually used and exercised a lot of restraint uh, when faced with these attackers. We're going to start with the first incident with Joseph Rosenbaum, who chased him down and Rittenhouse ended up firing four rounds, at least one of which was lethal. I've asked Steve Moses to break down this incident for us. Here's Steve. To me, that seems like a very reasonable fear on behalf of Rittenhouse when you have had someone who allegedly has told you more than once 
that he intends to kill you. The videos that I saw and the pictures of Rosenbaum that I saw uh, definitely looked like someone that was physically stronger and more capable than Rittenhouse. He was obviously agitated. And if someone in a situation like that uh, were lunging towards me, and physically I was concerned that they were going to overpower me, they told me that they were going to kill me, which suggests intent, obviously ability and opportunity there. So that leaves preclusion. Was there any place else for Rittenhouse to go? And the answer, again, seems to be pretty much no. I believe that that was a reasonable response. Interestingly enough, the prosecution offered up a witness at trial who said basically that he thought Rosenbaum was full of hot air and that he was just acting tough and that he personally, if he had been in Rittenhouse's position, wouldn't have believed Rosenbaum's threats and wouldn't have felt that he himself was in imminent fear of great bodily harm or death. Here's Don West on that issue. He was the witness that described Rosenbaum as false stepping, which uh, we've all heard, heard that discussion in the case where take a step or two towards someone to provoke a reaction, and but not follow through and then stop, almost like trying to get somebody to flinch, but without the intent to actually carry through. Uh, that as the sort of the foundation for this point, and that is, this guy, this witness, was asked by the prosecution whether he thought Rosenbaum was a threat. And I sat there and, and started listening at that point. Go, whoa, wait a second, because his answer is going to be pretty important no matter what it is. And his answer was, no, he did not think Rosenbaum was a threat. He thought he was basically a buffoon or a clown or a joke or whatever. So the antics that Rosenbaum was doing then, much the same that I think Rittenhouse may have witnessed, although I don't know that he witnessed all of that stuff, in this guy's mind, just confirmed that Rosenbaum was not dangerous and he was. this witness was not afraid of him. And I got the clear impression that he would not have acted the same way, perhaps, in, a sit in the same situation as, as Rittenhouse. I don't know that. Nobody knows that. But the difference in age, training, perspective, um, skills, and just the perception of who Rosenbaum really was. And we know how dynamic these things are, too. It wasn't, he wasn't being chased one-on-one -on -one by Rosenbaum. But... Steve, isn't that interesting uh, that how someone evaluates another person as a threat and whether they think they are a credible threat, whether it's a life-threatening threat? And I'm guessing that has a lot to do with who you think you are and how capable you think you are in a given situation. I would have to agree, and that's one of the reasons that we really urge concealed carriers to get training. Uh, once you have some training in terms of uh, what the threat might look like, what the threat might actually do, how they may follow through, and you get your skills up to 
to where one uh, you have that ability if uh, necessary to engage someone with a gun if your life is indeed at uh, great risk and you have also the skill and tactics to restrain not restrain but to retain that weapon i mean that's one of the things that we spend a lot of emphasis on is uh retaining your handgun or you know when we i was on the team and i refer to as the special response team where we actually did high risk uh high risk writs of possession and went into houses under court order apartments uh, armed with rifles and shotguns you had some extensive training in what to do if someone made an attempt to you know grab your your rifle or your shotgun that is not true for the majority of the people out there certainly not true for you know the average concealed carrier and even if rosenbaum had been acting in some way that may have seemed buffoonish uh if someone who's been acting like a buffoon who is physically larger than me and has made those threats actually lunges for my firearm and attempts to get their hands on it, or perhaps even does get their hands on it, uh, I'm, I'm going to take that very seriously. And uh, like I said, I don't want to repeat myself too much, is just that it seemed like all the elements for justifiable self-defense were then present. There's a subjective and an objective component of self-defense. Basically, what this guy said is, subjectively, he was not afraid of Rosenbaum. Objectively, people might have looked at Rosenbaum and him and thought he should have been, but when he says he's not, then all of a sudden he doesn't have the same credible self-defense claim if he winds up uh, shooting this guy. So, uh, and of course, he, he, he's a different person than, than Rittenhouse and it was completely different circumstances, but age and training and all of that factors into your moment of truth when you have to make those critical decisions. Regardless of whether a jury would end up judging Rittenhouse objectively or subjectively, the prosecutors made the case that even if Rittenhouse did feel justified in using deadly force, four shots was too many. And I've asked Steve Moses whether in a life or death situation, four shots is excessive for ending a potential threat. Here's Steve. Well, the objective of lawful self-defense is not to kill the other person that's trying to kill you or injure you or commit, you know, a, there's some, I guess, different uh, forcible felonies in which that kind of response is, is lawful, but it is to stop that other person. And the other person is actually kind of in control of their own stoppage. Uh, there's different ways that can be accomplished. Uh, it, I always refer to it as physiological and psychological. And an uh, example of psychological, uh, you know, a psychological stop is the attacker stopped what he or she was doing at the time because they chose to. Uh, they didn't want to get shot. They didn't want to get shot anymore. Uh, they felt great pain. I mean, just all these various reasons. In many instances, they've been shot at and missed. And that, in and of itself, caused them to break off the attack. So that's the psychological side. The physiological side is that the attacker 
may very well intended to follow through, but they're no longer capable of doing that. So in a situation like that where it took place at extremely close distance, that's probably going to be the one of three things. Uh, one is going to be a hit to the central nervous system, that is a hit to the spine or perhaps the brain that just shuts down the electrical system and the person is no longer physically capable of continuing. Uh, the second thing, and normally this takes a little bit longer, is exsanguination. Uh, basically, the person sustains such a sufficient loss of blood that there's not oxygenated blood getting to the brain and you know being able to continue to, to power that person. And usually, uh, that's a pretty decent volume of loss. Uh, all my training suggests that the average person maybe runs around with like maybe five liters of blood in their system. It may take as much as two liters of blood loss to cause that person to no longer be able to contain, you know, continue their actions. So that's in place. And then the third one is that there's just uh, some damage that people can uh, take that just almost shuts down the, uh, you know, the brain. I think I've, I may have told you one time about how you often see in the sport of UFC fighters taking a hard kick to the liver or the punch and how that will take a hardened fighter that's just taken all of this uh, amazing damage to their bodies. They're bloody. Their faces are all torn up. They're going, and all of a sudden they take that shot to the right place. In this uh, you know, instance, I'm talking about the liver, and just the overwhelming pain just overwhelms the sensory system, and they, they tend to collapse. Uh, so basically, Rosenbaum, uh, I don't want to say he had some say over what was going on, but Rittenhouse basically just needed to stay in the fight until such time that Rosenbaum was no longer a threat, and it appeared in this particular instance it took four rounds. And uh, not everything in the body is uh, considered vital. There's a whole lot more uh, volume in our bodies that does not contain, you know, stuff that is really, you know, life-sustaining. So we're talking about stuff that's really going to cause a problem for you. It's going to be hits to the spine, uh, the brain, uh, the heart, above the heart, uh, in terms of just, you know, instant stops. So that would be my logical explanation, especially in light of the fact that he was in uh, two more uh, altercations, three actually, but two more, in which it was not necessary for him or he did not fire near as much ammo. We've seen evidence that Joseph Rosenbaum wasn't entirely psychologically stable and the bullets that Rittenhouse fired, if they didn't physically stop him, it's quite possible that they weren't going to psychologically stop him. And from that perspective, Steve's saying that four may have been just enough. But um, that's difficult to argue sometimes to a jury. And if a jury sees that even if one of those shots were excessive, that one shot could be murder, while the other ones were lawful self-defense. Here's Don West on that legal risk. If you fire even once more, then you absolutely have to to neutralize the threat. And some of the things that Steve was saying, uh, you could, Steve, well, if you can fire that gun easily three or four times in a couple of seconds, you could have fired it twice as many times in twice as much time, I take it. So the fact that he only fired four times seems like restraint. On the other hand, 
the prosecutor made an argument, why fire so many times? Was it necessary? Was it, uh, air quotes, overkill? And that gave the prosecutor an argument to make, gave the jury an opportunity to respond and say it was disproportional in the sense that it was beyond what was necessary for self-defense, then it carried over into recklessness and uh, criminal conduct. Now, it's worth stressing now that in each of the next encounters where someone was killed or shot, Rittenhouse fired only one round, and that one round proved enough to stop each of those encounters. And so when the Rittenhouse jury was out for 27 hours deliberating whether each one of those shots were justified and they come back to this first incident with Joseph Rosenbaum where they have to justify all four shots, the fact that Rittenhouse chose to shoot only once in these next encounters may have contributed to their decision to acquit him in the Rosenbaum shooting. While each of these incidents were being viewed criminally with separate charges for each of the shootings, certainly they were looked at overall, and certainly how they juxtaposed against each other became important, I think, for the jury in reaching, uh, reaching the verdicts, not just in the individual case, but in, in the case as a whole. So in the wake of the Rosenbaum shooting, the crowd turns on Rittenhouse, and Rittenhouse decides to hightail it out of there. He's running towards where he knows law enforcement has a presence. While he's retreating, he's attacked by 26-year-old Anthony Huber, who is armed with a skateboard. Anthony Huber hits Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse falls. Here's Don West on what happens next. In between Huber hitting him the first time and Rittenhouse being on the ground, this guy leaps through the air and tries to kick him in the head, misses, and then keeps running. That was, I think, the first shot that Rittenhouse made after the the shots against Rosenbaum. Don's right. They were, in fact, the first two shots fired after the Rosenbaum incident. They hit nobody, although Rittenhouse was charged for those shots, and had he been convicted, he would have faced up to 12 years in jail for two shots fired that hurt nobody. My guess is that when the jury was considering that charge, they essentially overlooked it, focusing instead on the shots that harmed or killed people. And that brings us to the shot that killed Anthony Huber. Now, Don watched a lot of this trial, and he noted that the prosecutors tried to make a big thing about the skateboard being claimed to be used as a deadly weapon. Yeah, that was in the final argument. It may even have been in the rebuttal argument, and it was exactly that. If the skateboard's a deadly weapon, how many grandfathers or grandparents and parents are giving their kids and grandkids deadly weapons. I, I, I have to think that people that heard that comment would be surprised. People that 
thought they were expected to take it seriously would be a shock. I can't believe that played very well with the jury. And in some ways, it's actually somewhat disrespectful. So it was a silly thing to say. But the point is, how do you define a deadly weapon? What is a deadly weapon and what isn't? So we asked Steve, our tactical expert, to explain for those without imagination how a skateboard could be used as a deadly weapon. Well, uh, immediately after this uh, event occurred, uh, I went to the uh, local Walmart and uh, purchased a skateboard, <clears throat> excuse me, because I wanted to do an examination on my, myself. I, I, and it was pretty much what I thought. Uh, the average skateboard probably weighs somewhere between seven and nine pounds. And even though it's a flat, you know, fiberglass type surface on the top, uh, below you have, I believe, what is called a truck which is kind of a suspension that is a, you know, a long uh, piece that runs lengthwise, the length pretty much of the skateboard, and then with two axles and two metal wheels. And so we actually took that thing and just, you know, whacked a couple of things, just, you know, just like picnic tables and stuff, to just see what kind of impact it might have. And it was quite impressive. And I very much believe that if someone was struck in the head with a skateboard by an individual that's actually standing over them that has the ability to not only put the full torque of their body but use gravity to swing that thing at your head, I'm pretty sure that that could do a pretty uh, devastating injury. I'm, I'm almost certain that a good solid hit would probably uh, – you know, lacerate somebody and probably cause a, a pretty serious concussion at a minimum. So there's a pretty objective explanation from Steve Moses about how a skateboard could be used as a deadly weapon. And I'm guessing that most of the folks who are listening to this podcast would agree with that. But I also have to think that that jury that spent 27 hours deliberating this case spent at least some of that time talking about whether or not a skateboard could be a deadly weapon and whether or not in this particular situation that the threat of being harmed by that skateboard was enough to justify Rittenhouse's lethal use of force response. And this is something that we call the armed defender's dilemma, which is when an armed defender encounters a threat, a physical threat from somebody who is armed perhaps not traditionally armed, but armed with something that could cause them great bodily harm or death if used in the right way with the right intention, but it's not a firearm. It's not a, a weapon that is proportional or as immediately lethal as a firearm. And in any circumstance where you're faced with using a firearm against a seemingly less lethal weapon there's room for people to ask that question about whether your lethal use of force was proportional and therefore justified luckily for rittenhouse in this case the jury decided clearly that the skateboard did qualify as a deadly weapon and they acquitted rittenhouse on that shot that killed anthony huber so that moves us now to the final encounter with Gage Grosskreutz. Unlike Anthony Huber, Grosskreutz wasn't armed with a skateboard. He was actually armed 
with a pistol. And at trial, like I mentioned earlier, he admitted that at one point he pointed the pistol at Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse raised his rifle. Grosskreutz took a step back. He put his hands up in the air. It looked like the defensive display was enough to stop that encounter. But uh, Grosskreutz then leapt towards Rittenhouse, and that's when Rittenhouse shot him one time in the bicep. The pain of that was enough to convince Grosskreutz to break off the attack. Grosskreutz ran away. Rittenhouse got up, and he was able to finally escape to where law enforcement had a presence. Here's Steve with more on that encounter. Uh, yes, uh, Grosskreutz was closing distance on him. Uh, I think he attempted to, it looked like he was trying to feign, you know, hey, you know, supplication, compliance, hey, I'm not a threat. And then he raised the pistol. Uh, I think at one point somebody suggested that uh, Grosskreutz uh, was attempting to shoot what he thought was an active shooter. And uh, I've taken an active shooter instructor courses uh, before, and I can tell you that very seldom do people run up on active shooters if they have a gun, you know, not having the gun in front of them uh, in preparation to shoot. Yeah, I agree. And it was only, again, one shot. Uh, He hit him in the arm. He not only... Uh, disarmed him, he almost de-armed him. All joking aside, Rittenhouse used only as much force as required to end the attack. And he was able to do that without killing his attacker. And when Grosskreutz retreated, Rittenhouse stopped firing and then continued to retreat himself. In our original podcast on this subject, I suggested that Rittenhouse deserved credit for restraint as demonstrated by every round that remained in the magazine of his rifle. Almost when he didn't shoot, it becomes as valuable as when he did because not only did he show restraint within each individual incident, on the video around the time of Grosskreutz uh, there after he's on the ground, there was another individual who was approaching him kind of fast approaching him, much in the same way Grosskreutz was. And when uh, Kyle Rittenhouse raised the gun, this guy stopped, he put his hands up, and he may have retreated, but he at least stopped, and so did Rittenhouse. It's evident he was prepared to shoot him if he kept coming and became that imminent threat of great bodily harm or death. But when he stopped, so did Rosen, or so did Rittenhouse. And I think that, in order to his benefit, certainly the jury would take note of it and put it in the context that he wasn't there just spraying the crowd, uh, shooting anybody and everybody he thought was getting within a certain distance of him. I think it's really important to stress that in each one of these incidents, Kyle Rittenhouse was actively trying to run away from his attacker. And it was only when he was cornered or when he fell and was no longer able to run away that he resorted to deadly force. And then even then, he clearly fired only as many rounds as was needed to end the attack. In many ways in this case, I think Rittenhouse's actions speak for themselves, but 
when you're dealing with a self-defense case, the real question for the jury is what was the shooter's intent? And the only real way to express that without other statements or other evidence being put in that would demonstrate the defender's mindset at the time, the defender's going to have to testify. It's a huge risk, and in this particular case, Rittenhouse did testify. He ended up being a very good witness on his own behalf. Here's Don West about that decision that the defense has to make about whether to put their witness, their defendant, on the stand. Yes, without without question. Not only do you have to have enough evidence in the record to support the defense at a threshold level, which means that the judge recognizes that it is a valid valid in the sense that it's a lawful defense that can be raised, not as to its degree or certainty or likelihood of success, but just that uh, there's a legal threshold that's met, and it doesn't require much. Uh, some scholars call it a scintilla, just the tiniest bit of evidence of self-defense gets you up the first rung of the ladder, which is getting the judge to agree to a jury instruction. When the jury is instructed on self-defense, then they can properly factor it in, decide whether it's been established to the satisfaction they decide, and then, of course, ultimately whether the prosecution has disproven it beyond a reasonable doubt. But you don't necessarily want to stop with just the little bit of evidence if you have more. The more, the better, and the harder it is to disprove. So when you have a defendant who has been a defender in a self-defense case, there's a complicated, complex, nail-biting process where you're evaluating the sufficiency, the quality, the quantity of the evidence for all those reasons, including whether you think there's enough in the record that the jury is going to go with you. And, of course, then, would it benefit the case? Would it increase the likelihood of success if the accused testifies when he or she doesn't have to in order to meet that minimum threshold? So once you've met it, you don't have to, but then you have to decide, should you? And is it going to be better for your case if you do? I think juries want to hear from the accused if there's a, 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 if it makes sense. The idea, of course, is that days or weeks of testimony almost become disregarded when the accused takes the stand and the whole case focuses on not just what they say, but uh, how they look and how they express themselves. And are they a jerk or are they nice? Does the jury like them or dislike them or feel sorry for them? All of that stuff goes into play in deciding whether it's going to help or hurt the case. Yeah, and and you said that if you've put on enough evidence, you don't need to have the defendant testify but of course no one tells you that the jury doesn't give you like a little nod and a thumbs up saying yeah you're good bro we don't yeah you don't got what we need you don't don't know until you don't get lap times along the way yeah yeah Yeah. no you don't you don't know if you won or not yet and you gotta i actually saw you in a hearing one time ask the judge do i need to keep going (laughs) (laughs) like am i convinced you yet because i got another two hours of this if you want it um 
Yeah, and, and so we know that from the press reports that the defense attorneys in this case had actually done some mock trials and they tried it with written house's testimony without it and that he did way better with his testimony and uh so they put him up and uh a pretty good witness for his own defense wasn't he i thought he was i thought he was uh first of all he he didn't take the bait and that's what prosecutors often like to do is push a hot button if they can find one to try to evoke, yeah, whether it's anger, hostility, something that they can then draw on and say, well, you saw him on the stand. You saw how quick he was to anger. He wasn't afraid of fill-in-the-blank victim. He was just angry and try to undermine self-defense that way. Of course, if you get rattled and, and aren't able to think clearly, then your answers won't necessarily be complete. I, I know from experience that it's a terrible, terrible spot for someone taking the stand to say something that's inconsistent with what they've said before, because the prosecutor is going to have all of that, whether it was the initial 911 call, if you're the one that made it, your statements to the responding officers, statements to detectives or investigators if you decide, and then all along um, throw in press conferences and stuff to boot. If you've made an inconsistent statement, and frankly, those statements may not come into evidence if you don't testify. But if you do, it's fair game, any inconsistency. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a uh, tight, high-wire act. I, I, can, I can offer this, that... If someone's charged with a crime and they hire a lawyer, the lawyer gets to make a lot of decisions. They typically don't without the client's involvement and usually the consent, but they make strategy decisions. It could include which witnesses to call and which ones not to, and sometimes even how to raise a particular defense or ones uh, not, not to raise. But there are a couple of things that are absolutely sacrosanct to the accused. One of them, and and what I mean by that is the lawyer cannot make the decision. Only the defendant, only the accused can decide, number one, whether to plead guilty or go to trial. The lawyer can never make that decision. The decision can be made with advice and counsel and all that stuff, but that's solely and exclusively the defendant, the client's decision, and likewise, whether or not to take the stand uh, in your defense. You have the absolute right to do it. In fact, most judges will, shortly before the absolute end of the trial, uh, ask the accused, ask the defendant whether they intend to take the stand or whether they intend not to, and whether it's their decision, whether they've had the opportunity to consult with counsel. They want to clear up the record so that if there is a verdict against the individual, then on appeal or on post-conviction, they can't claim, well, my lawyer told me I couldn't take the stand. My lawyer told me not to and that he would take care of it. Any of that stuff, the purpose of the judge's inquiry is to clean all that stuff up so there can be no claim on something as important as whether or not uh, the defendant takes the defendant takes the stand. So Rittenhouse took the stand, 
and it worked out about as well as it possibly could have for him. And in the end, the jury acquitted him on all charges. And uh, from a legal perspective, that's a win. But from a, a personal perspective, I asked Steve Moses whether he thought that the acquittal in the Rittenhouse case was a win for Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, I, I would say it would be a, a bittersweet win. I'm going to have to say that he survived as opposed to to win. I mean, there's no telling what the rest of his life is going to look like. There is just no way that I can really imagine uh, what he went through, what he put his family through. Uh, I've not sure i'd love to hear from you know perhaps don or what he might think that the the cost of that trial was and uh i mean and what happens if perhaps you're in a position where you know unlike uh rittenhouse which this was fairly high profile uh you're not able to fund the cost of your trial and so to me i'm going to have to say um uh he more or less he more or less survived I love the way Steve puts that there. As a defendant in the criminal justice system, you never win when you get an acquittal. You've simply survived the prosecution, and then you're left with the task of putting your life back together. Well, to put the dot on that I and cross that T, we've talked about this idea of two fights. The first fight is the one for your life, and you have to literally survive that one when you're facing a deadly force uh, attack. And uh, all of those issues that we've talked about, uh, starting with avoidance and de-escalation and all of that, but there may be that moment that you have no choice, no reasonable choice, but to use deadly force in response to that deadly force threat. And uh, regrettably, Law enforcement may not see it exactly the same way you do, which starts you down that path. And if it gets to the point that you are charged, indicted, ultimately you are then in that second fight, and that's the one for your liberty or essentially the rest of of your life. And um, the legal consequences of that is dramatic. The resources needed to fight that fight are extensive, the stamina, just the the wherewithal to survive that process. And it can be a year or two or more of waking up every morning. And then just when you begin to think, hey, it's a pretty good day, you remember that uh, you don't know how many more days you're going to have like that. Because once the jury comes back, if it goes against you, You've um, put yourself and your family in the worst possible situation. Now, we all know there are those circumstances where you absolutely have to defend yourself and those that you love. And our point, isn't it, uh, when it comes right down to it, is know what those are, be careful, uh, make the right decisions, know the legal boundaries, and then no matter what your decision is, you'll be able to live with it. One of the things that Don says right there is a reminder that a defender's decision to use deadly force doesn't just affect them. The consequences of a use of force incident doesn't just affect the attacker and the defender, but also 
the families of both of those parties. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one other thing, Sean, you know, kind of from my, I tend to also kind of look at these things from both my personal perspective and the perspective of a great number of concealed carriers is we tend to think about that impact being only directed to, you know, in this case, Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, How many of us have families and children and other people who also are going to be uh, affected by the choices that we make. And so in many instances, it's not just us that are going to suffer the consequences of all that. Uh, It very well could be, you know, our dependents and our loved ones. And to me, that's that's a huge consideration. In the wake of the verdict, there are certain folks who seem to look at Rittenhouse's acquittal as a vindication for some idea of vigil anti-justice. And there's a little bit of a sense that for some, Kyle Rittenhouse is being held up as a kind of folk hero. And I wanted to ask Steve Moses, uh, who's got so much experience with firearms and self-defense, how he felt about that particular phenomenon. Well, I think that's very negative. Uh, I've seen some memes where, you know, it's it's Kyle saying, make my day, uh, you know, like old Dirty Harry, uh, you know, uh, sayings and such. I've seen one where he was wearing like Doc Holliday uh, costume, or apparently, I mean, his head was superimposed over someone wearing a Doc Holliday costume saying, I'll be your Huckleberry, which is a direct reference to the movie Tombstone when Val Kilmer was telling uh, Johnny Ringo that he would be actually uh, his huckle-bearer, which simply means, hey, I'll be your coffin-bearer. And so I've seen a lot of uh, videos. I've seen, not videos, but I've seen memes where they were suggesting that Kyle Rittenhouse is actually the the answer to violence and that the actions that he took were were very heroic. And we need more people to act like Kyle, be like Kyle, and, you know, do what Kyle did, which I think is just sending out a terrible message, uh, not only to uh, concealed carriers or people that tend to believe in the Second Amendment and the right to self-defense, but others that see that, which tends to, like, maybe cause them some concern that perhaps every armed citizen is going to respond in the same manner that he did. So for me, I think it's, I I do not think that it's it's a good thing. In a lot of ways, just because the jury acquitted Rittenhouse legally and rightfully as they should on each individual shooting, they didn't make any judgment about Rittenhouse's decision to bring a rifle to that dangerous circumstance in the first place. And arguably, if he had not, those shootings wouldn't have occurred. And for the concealed carrier... That decision to go to a place of danger as an armed defender is the big lesson from the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Well, the big issue that I see is that Kyle willingly put himself in a place that he knew that was going to be highly dangerous. Uh, He brought with him a uh, long gun, which was very visible to other people. Obviously, it tended to incite some of them, which maybe, 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 you know, was the ultimate cause for his being singled out and attacked. And I just think that that is just a horrible mistake. And the other thing is, is that people tend to forget what Kyle Rittenhouse 
went through, uh, probably the concerns that he and his family had about where he was going to spend the rest of his life, whether or not other people were going to be ultimately in charge of determining where he was going to live for the rest of his life. And then, uh, you know, just, my gosh, the cost of, uh, you know, hiring attorneys and then just kind of being in just probably, I would think, a, a constant state of angst during the trial, uh, wondering what the outcome was going to be. Steve specifically talks about the danger of bringing a conspicuous long gun to a dangerous situation like that. But he later expounded also about the potential dangers of going there even with a concealed pistol. Uh, yeah, and the only thing, too, that I might add is that uh, not only was it a bad idea, in my opinion, to go there with a long gun, it would have been a bad idea to go there with a concealed handgun. It would have been a bad idea to go there with, with no gun. And we've seen, you know, in multiple incidents where those, you know, some pretty horrific things happened to people that were in, you know, all, you know, any one of those three states. We've seen people that were literally beat to death or, you know, injured severely. We see people that had to use a handgun to defend themselves and were prosecuted. And then we see now where someone with a long gun found themselves in very much the same situation. So I think going to an event where, you know, violence is very likely is just a bad idea, uh, regardless what you have or do not have on your person. So essentially what Steve's saying there is that whether you're an armed defender, a concealed carrier, or an unarmed citizen, intentionally leaving a place of safety to go to a place where it is dangerous seems like it's always a bad idea. And if you're armed, then now the risk of you having to resort to your firearm and then facing the legal risks associated with using your firearm in self-defense are piled on top of all the other safety issues that you'd have to consider if you leave a place of relative safety to go to a place of danger. Now, Don West in this conversation noted that uh, there may be times when there are stakes that are so high that putting yourself in danger is worth it, perhaps in the situation where you have to protect the lives of loved ones. Here's Don. And I think, Steve, you stated the bottom line at the very beginning and then basically uh, reiterated at the end, which is uh, don't go there to start with if you think there is a good chance of chaos and violence. Uh, don't go there armed, even concealed, and certainly don't go there with a, a firearm in the open. And what we've never really talked about is, well, what if you do? Because it wasn't illegal for Kyle Rittenhouse to go there or the others that went there carrying uh, these long guns in the open. So to tell people not to go is the best advice. But it doesn't help people that say, well, I understand that, but I'm still going to go because of their own personal reasons or, or what have you. So I thought maybe if you could talk about techniques or if you're going to go, for God's sake, be sure you know where the muzzle is. If you start 
whether you're doing it unintentionally or intentionally, the fact is if, if the muzzle gets raised or if you're sweeping the crowd, if you're doing anything that others perceive as aggressive, um, it's, you're going to be the target at that point. Uh, I differentiate uh, between rifles and shotguns, what we'll call, I'll put those together, and handguns. And handguns, uh, I always view that as a defensive weapon just in case. I don't actually take a handgun with me to go somewhere because I might have to defend myself. There's, I think there is a chance I might have to defend myself. It's just that I don't dictate uh, the time or location when someone else might choose to attack me. And so if I know that there is a high probability that I'm going to be in a fight and I'm going to have to use a firearm to defend myself and perhaps my loved ones, uh, I'm absolutely would want a, um, I'd want a rifle, shotgun second, rifle, rifle first. They're so much more, so much more effective at stopping threats with good hits. You know, the rifle and the shotgun too, to a lesser extent, Actually, not a lesser extent, but just at a more at a shorter distance, uh, it creates great tissue damage. The chances that you're going to stop someone with a solid hit to the uh, upper torso, especially if you use ammunition that's designed for the task, it's, it's just such a such a superior tool. So, I I just cannot even envision a situation in which I would be taking a rifle with me for defense unless I'm having to defend something that is just so dear to my heart that I'm willing to go ahead and do that. And for me, that absolutely is going to be uh, people. And I talk, I'm talking about not people that I don't know. I'm talking about people that I need to take care of and in terms of property, because actually this is kind of a, a form of violence that can be very dangerous, would be arson. Would I protect a property where there was people, you know, inside that I cared about from arson where they could be injured or killed? Yeah, <clears throat> I, would, I would take a, a long gun for that purpose. I cannot envision in my – right now as I think about all this stuff, Don, given the current state, I cannot envision that situation taking place. In regard to a handgun, uh, basically the handgun is there in case I am attacked and I cannot get away. So if it's a bad situation and if it's developing, if it looks violent, and I've got my handgun on my person, uh, I need to get out of there immediately. And then, you know, I can kind of draw some, you know, some, I guess some, some liking, not liking, I'm trying to think of a proper term here. Um, in regard to what you know, Kyle did, Kyle was in a situation where he needed a gun to defend himself. And in every one of those events that he did or incidents, it looked to me like it was uh, legitimate. So if I was forced to use a handgun, uh, basically, I'm going to follow all those four handgun rules or any firearm rules. Treat all guns as if they were loaded. Never let the muzzle cover anything that you're not willing to shoot or at least in the safest possible position. Keep your finger off the trigger and up on the, the slide or the frame until you're on target and ready to shoot and know your target and what is around it. And you still need to follow those rules. 
So if I'm not dealing with a threat in a crowd, I've had to use my handgun. As soon as I've got that situation dealt with, I need to do one of two things. I need to get that handgun in a really low profile, uh, ready position where it's not just apparent to anybody right around me, or even better yet, get it back in the holster. I might keep my hand on the holster in case that, you know, the threat uh, reemerges. But any of these things to do to minimize the time that that handgun is out of the holster, I think is a positive thing. And the other thing is, is that I cannot tell you how difficult it is to not avoid, to avoid sweeping other people with your muzzle unless you're, you're trained. Uh, that's one of the things that being on a team background, I mean, there'd be like six or eight of us. Uh, on occasions that would go in with rifles and shotguns and uh, into like a two-bedroom apartment. So that's a lot of bodies that's moving around. And, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're taking angles. We're working as a team. We're doing all this other stuff. You're basically encountering other members of your team in certain rooms. There's going to be people in there that are non-combatants. You have to have complete control of that muzzle. And the only time you bring that muzzle up, it is when you feel like you need to engage or perhaps use, you know, basically what would be lawful dis- uh, defensive display. Now, mm. here's the other thing a lot of people don't think about, Sean, is that most people do their training on a square range. And what that simply means is you've got some static targets out there, and uh, they're staying in the same place the whole time. So i got all these different variables in a crowded situation that includes my moving, the person that I'm concerned about that I perceive as a threat moving, and people around them that are moving, and I definitely don't control the latter two. So I very well could be in a position where I think I'm completely lined up, and all of a sudden I've just swept somebody because they stepped right across the line of fire, or I was getting ready perhaps to point that weapon at a uh, person I perceived as a threat, and they moved. And uh, suddenly there was a uh, what I would call a non-combatant behind them, or perhaps a non-combatant step right behind them. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and I mean the fact that no one else was injured uh, during this encounter that Rittenhouse had, to me, is a minor miracle. A minor miracle. Maybe not a bad way to wrap up our conversation about the Rittenhouse case. Both the fact that Rittenhouse wasn't harmed more, that more people weren't killed during those interactions, and that he threaded the needle and got the acquittal that he deserved in the end is a minor miracle. Steve's resuscitation there about the tactical and logistical concerns for an armed defender going into a dynamic, chaotic, potentially combat circumstance demonstrates the the tactical risks that an armed defender takes by putting himself in that position. But we also want to underscore that with the extraordinary legal risks that Rittenhouse also took on. It's leaving a place of safety and going to a place where there is danger carries extraordinary risks. And I think maybe what Steve said earlier on in this podcast is a great final word. 
the you don't win in that situation the best case scenario is that you survive not just the dangerous ordeal but also the potential legal fight that would happen in the aftermath that's our podcast for today thanks guys for listening through the end we'll be around next time until then be smart stay safe take care <laughs>